we're on a collision course with extinction. Many current food systems and farming practices are simply not sustainable. Food security is, is going to be one of the biggest challenges of the next century. And we really need everyone to be interested in this topic of food security and climate change. For too long, we've been reducing the diversity of crops that we grow, decimating habitats and removing more soil than we can put back. Our climate is warming and the weather is more intense. That means that even as science races to seek solutions and alternatives to feed us for the future, these options are often disappearing faster than we can find them. Our grandchildren and great-grandchildren would have very bland diets, if I could say that, and a lot of processed and chemical alternatives added to their foods. In the face of forest fires, floods, soil erosion, and extreme temperatures, we can simply no longer grow the same things that we always have, and in some places, because ecosystems are dying. We need to take action now. So what are the foods our children's children will be eating? And how useful is your go-to recipe book going to be in 50 years' time? I'm James Wong, and this time, discover the foods in our future in Unearthed Journeys into the Future of Food from the Royal Botanic Gardens Q. I'm Maria, and uh, <laughs> this one over here is Mario. Mm -hmm. And together we founded Sharp and Sour Studio a couple of years ago. We basically use food as a medium to explore complex realities and uh, complex issues uh, in a way that makes it more approachable for everyone. In Kew Gardens, there's this huge glass house, and it's a beautiful glass house. And in front of it, there's this massive grass field, basically that is normally empty, but this time is filled with these big kind of totems, we could call them. And there is like a bigger kind of like structure full of podiums with some glass cases. And inside those glass cases, you can see different foods. They are all nine foods that are endangered for many different reasons, mainly climate crisis. You can find their coffee or you can find bananas. You can find seafood in general. Also next to those, you can see a couple of totems, like smaller ones with other endangered foods and also with already extinct foods. That is something that probably people don't know already. We've had already foods that have gone extinct from pigeons that we used to eat to a really weird plant that the Romans used to use for cooking as a, as a spice. I think it, it, putting anything, a food, in a display case, it always has that effect. Like all of a sudden it becomes more precious, more valuable. And people like actually pay attention to it or look at it through a different lens. Chocolate, coffee, wine. Those three were the ones where people were more like, really, like I had no idea. Or like, oh my God, a world without coffee, you know. I saw a small girl with her father. And one of the questions was, would you give up your favorite foods in order to save the world's biodiversity? And she said like, oh, well, you know what? I think you said yes, but I'm gonna say no. I, I want my favorite foods. <laughs> I mean, it was cute, but it was like, she is right. I mean, we and older generations are the ones causing the problem. And we are asking to new generations to stop eating things that we've enjoyed before in order to save the world. And this also applies to like developing countries. We have 
develop our countries so bad uh, and to the point that we are causing this climate crisis. And we are asking now to the less developed countries, if I can say that, to not do it, to not do the same. The stories that Mario and Maria are using their design skills to tell are all born from insights made by scientists studying how the world's food crops and plant species are faring in the face of change. By understanding the threats to our much-loved foods, we can experiment with how to protect them in the future. But even as we realize this, there is much more research still to do in order to find solutions to these problems. I'm Dr. Carly Cowell. I'm Head of Conservation Policy and Science Communications. Crops such as coffee aren't adaptable to higher temperatures. Crops such as potatoes don't like drought and they need pollination from bees. And then things like bananas and olives are susceptible to diseases that are wiping out the cultivars we're relying on for these crops that we see in the supermarkets. Like grapes, which we get wine from, are also under threat to they rely on specific soil types and climates, and this is reducing with climate change. So the grape varieties that make all the different wines that we have are reducing, so we could see a reduction in wine, as well as um, avocados. Avocados do need a lot of water. Um, they are susceptible to diseases, and many avocados are based on, once again, one or two individual cultivars. So avocados might be disappearing, Today we're at Wakehurst in West Sussex. This is where I'm pretty much sitting on a daily basis dealing with policy, but also interacting with all my colleagues across the globe. Without the work that, that Q and its partners are doing, looking at wild genes and diversity of different crops, we could see a very different plate of food in front of our grandchildren and maybe great-grandchildren in the future, with crops missing, with foodstuffs missing completely, bread being made of something completely different. The variety of fruit and vegetables really cut down. We probably wouldn't be seeing bananas. A lot of our red fruits and berries, which are pollinated by bees, probably wouldn't see. Um, potatoes could be gone completely, and that's a staple in a lot of households, particularly up here in the north. And then maize meal, um, corn. Corn we could see pretty much gone with only a few varieties still growing. So our health would not be great. Um, which would increase costs in medical and hospital. So overall, it's not looking good for us or the environment. The IUCN Red List of Threatened Species is the most authoritative source on the extinction risk of animal and plant species. I am uh, Jack Plummer and I am the Plant Assessment Coordinator at the Royal Botanic Gardens Kew. And in my role, I facilitate and oversee the completion of assessments for the IUCN Red List of Threatened Species by Q scientists and, and Q partners. So we're in the uh, Palm House at Kew, and it's pretty warm in here at the moment. And we're standing next to a rather large banana plant, a Cavendish variety of banana. The plants in the, the Palm House are allowed to grow kind of over the top of the walkway, so you feel really very much immersed within the jungle of the Palm House. There's lots of banana plants in a row, and they're very, they're very tall. So the Palm House is maybe about 8 to 10 metres tall, and uh, the banana plants actually are touching the ceiling. When we think of bananas, there are 89 wild species of banana, but there are about 1,200 
cultivated varieties. And the group which we are most familiar with, because they're the ones that are present in our supermarkets, are the Cavendish group of bananas. There are 119 million tonnes of bananas produced every year. In the wild, they're not just yellow. There are a variety of different colours of bananas. The inflorescence can vary dramatically in colour. You can get yellow, orange, red, purple. A very spectacular plant. And one of the reasons that they are seen in, in houses and botanic gardens around the world is because they are very ornamental. The export banana trade for dessert bananas is based... 99% of it is based on a single variety, which is the Cavendish. This means that... If something were to happen to the Cavendish, it would affect the whole global crop. Now, lots of crops, but particularly bananas, are often grown in monocultures. And monocultures are areas of, of land where the same crop is grown. But for bananas, every crop, every plant within that plantation is genetically identical. If plants are genetically identical, it means that they are more kind of susceptible to abiotic and biotic stresses. So abiotic stresses are things like drought, salinity, and biotic stresses are things like pests and diseases. So if all the plants in a field are genetically identical and they're affected by, one plant becomes affected by a disease, there's no reason, there's no ability for the plants to become resistant to that disease. And so it could very feasibly wipe out the whole field. Now the problem for bananas is that this is really amplified to a global scale. Because we are so reliant on this single variety, it means that it's plausible that the entire global harvest can be affected by a single disease. It has happened before. We used to rely on a different variety of banana. So if you're walking around the shops in the early 1900s, you'd have seen a different variety of banana. Not the Cavendish we know today, but a variety called the Grote Michel. And it was grown in the same way and was similarly susceptible to disease. And unfortunately, a disease did arise called Panama disease, which is caused by the fungus Fusarium oxysporum former special cubense, which can, which can be uh, shortened to FOC. And that actually decimated the global harvest for export. So there was a, a time in the 1950s, 1960s, when there were no bananas, there was a global shortage. At that time, we then decided to shift to a different cultivar, the Cavendish banana, which was resistant to this disease. And for many years, that was successful. But now, unfortunately, there is a new variant, a novel variant of the causal fungus, which is Tropical Race 4. And unfortunately, this affects the Cavendish banana as well and is currently spreading through plantations of Cavendish banana around the world. There are a few different ways which we could look to try and solve this problem. One is by breeding the banana we have and creating new cultivars. The other is by diversifying the range of species that we actually use. And perhaps one of the most promising avenues would be the use of genes, so genetic information from crop wild relatives. So these crop wild relatives are species which are closely related to the crop plant. All of the species within the genus Musa are technically quite close to the crop plant. Now for other crops it's somewhat easier to transfer that genetic information but because the banana is sterile it makes it more difficult. However with advances in breeding technologies we are increasingly able to transfer this genetic information from more distantly related plants. There are 81 species within the Musa genus and we currently use really just two of them. So there is this huge huge reservoir of genetic diversity held in the crop wild relatives. And the crop wild relatives, they are 
evolving continuously under natural selection in the wild. What we need to do as a consumer is really think about do we have to have that perfect yellow curved banana that, that we're used to or are we happy to start trying different alternatives and that's the same across all, all crops and all food. I, I think I've been culpable of it in the past looking for these kind of really neat and tidy fruits and vegetables but really we, we shouldn't be reliant on that, they all taste the same. Some of them probably taste better but look worse so that's something which we can actually do in our, in our daily lives. Today we're in the glass house of the Millennium Seed Bank building at Wakehurst where we're doing some experiments on banana plants and a lot of these plants have various projects that we're working on to see whether they can grow in cultivation we need to harvest seed from them to supplement the seed bank because perhaps they could be extinct in the wild back in their original country or there are so few numbers we don't want to harvest seed from the wild and each and every collection in the seed bank is based on an agreement with the origin country of how we can use those genetic resources and those seeds. And some of them, we can grow the plants, uh, we cannot commercialize them or use them in any other way other than for specific research. So this room that we're standing in now has quite a few succulent plants in it and some more dry, arid, not so, not so many humid tropical plants. Even though, as I say, there's about four giant banana trees, bushes next to us. So what we have here, we've got um, four or five pots of wild relatives of banana, which we are testing and, and growing to, to look at their growth habits. They're testing their DNA for genetic resistance to diseases. They, they don't produce the kind of bananas that we see in the shop, the big, nice yellow fruit, but they do produce banana-shaped fruit. Sometimes it comes out in different colors. Sometimes it remains green. It doesn't go yellow as we're used to, but they are all bananas. And really they're working to help their cultivated hybrid relatives. So looking at these banana plants, that we have at Wakehurst now. There's a variety of growth forms. Some have many stems. We have one that's really nice and big with big green leaves, as you would imagine a banana to look like. There's a smaller one in the background, really good green leaves as well and good growth form. There's another one that's looking a bit brown and, and crispy around the edges, maybe not faring so well in the, in the heat wave that the UK is experiencing right now, but that's a good test for climate change and adaptation. And we'll monitor how that one bounces back, or maybe not, over time. But there's a variety of, of heights and thickness and different stems in these pots. They're not all the same. And that is what we want. We want diversity in our crops. The banana is just one example of a much-beloved food that's extremely vulnerable to extinction. So alongside all of the plant science that's happening to learn about wild populations and explore their different qualities, it's down to us to be a little bit more open to trying new things. It's summertime in Bethlehem Wood in Wakehurst. In a clearing amongst the trees, two scientists are about to see an artwork based on their research for the very first time. It's a tall, thatched wooden structure like a Sidama house, an Ethiopian style of building. Ethiopia is home to one of the world's most diverse food crops, with a vast number of different land races or varieties. 
Nset is known as the false banana and feeds 20 million people there. So how could this food crop solve food scarcity in other parts of the world? My name is Dr. James Burrell. I'm a research fellow at Kew. And one of the areas we work on a lot is Nset from Ethiopia with our collaborators in Ethiopia. My name is Dr. Rondawa Kababa. I'm from Ethiopia. Uh, I came from Hawassa University in the southern region where NSET is a culture anyway. So what is NSET? NSET is a, a relative of banana. So we're all familiar with bananas, one of the world's most widely traded crops, 100 million tons produced a year. And bananas are from Southeast Asia and there's about 70 or 80 species and we use predominantly just two of them. Now, Nset is from a sister genus and what I mean by that it's like a cousin of bananas that's much less well known. Some of them are native to Africa but one in particular called Nset ventricosum is native to Ethiopia and has become a staple crop for 20 million people. So it's incredibly important in a narrow region but it's very very poorly known elsewhere. There are you know more than 100 different varieties Basically, insect is used as a food. It could be. It is also used as a source of fiber. It is for cattle feed. Some are medicinal. You know, actually, most land races are basically used as a food. That diversity is absolutely spectacular. The average farmer is growing seven, eight, nine different types yeah. on on his or her farm, and they're specialized for different uses as well. Yeah, because relatively, you know, a single insect, uh, if you have an individual insect, it, it could feed a uh, family something like for 15 days because it's highly, you know, uh, productive. That's uh, one important thing. The other one is, unlike other crops, for example, if you take maize, you just plant it and you will get the product, you know, at some time of the year. But when it comes to insect, as long as you have different batches, you can, you can harvest any time of the year, even during drought. The other important feature is, I think, relatively compared to other crops, it's also drought resistant. We think. Yeah. Another project on that at the moment, just to make sure that's really yeah. true. So why is NSET such an important food security crop? The thing about NSET is it's a standing food source. It's an enormous amount of carbohydrate, and you can use it exactly when you need it. And that's better than having a bank account. You know, that is a, it's like a, a stock of food. And that's why NSET gets the name in Ethiopia, the tree against hunger. Tree against hunger, yeah, correct. There's a huge amount of knowledge associated with mm. NSET cultivation. And without that knowledge, which is held and owned by the farmers that have been developing NSET as a crop for thousands of years, then it's essentially useless. Yeah. And so you can own, it's only valuable when you combine the, the genetic diversity and, and the science with the indigenous knowledge that farmers have. Yeah. And collaborating with those farmers is, is absolutely essential to understanding anything about NSET's evolution. We're at Wakehurst and we are just in Bethlehem Wood on our way to see the False Banana Pavilion. And this is an art installation that is associated with our work on NSET, the work we're mm -hmm. collaborating with yeah. our colleagues in Ethiopia to study NSET diversity and wow we're just coming up we're just walking along the grass now and we can see this sort of thatched structure nestled in a little clearing in all the trees 
we've got a glorious sunny day for it so we're yeah. very lucky <laughs> and we are just going to come around the corner and and peer inside and and see exactly how this thing is made the material looks like you know that of most people living in the south which use inset as as the building material to, to build their house okay so we're just peering inside and um, wow and it's huh? a, well it's a bit dark and then there's light coming down through inside but the most amazing thing is all around the walls are inset leaves or, or pieces of wood carved to look like inset leaves yeah. chamo gimboa yeah. nechwe kiticho you have kiticho here as well yeah the big one <laughs> the big one this is like a, a way of visualizing that amazing diversity if you're familiar with different types of apple in a supermarket yeah. mm -hmm. so you might have cox braeburn gala these are all different types of of the same species and when farmers have developed them, we call them farmers' land races. And NSAID is particularly unusual because it's grown in a very small region by comparatively quite a small number of people. But we have recorded more than 1,500 different names yeah. for NSAID. And that's what's yeah. really remarkable about this, this building here at Wakehurst is we've got all these names and the regions they're from on uh, leaves all around the walls and the ceiling. Exceptional, you know, really. Very nice to see this in UK. <laughs> Food security is, is going to be one of the biggest challenges of the next century. Having an art installation like this helps us talk to different people. And we really need everyone to be interested in this topic of, of food security and climate change. And so this can only, only help us really make progress in that. So it's really exciting to see. NSET is not only diverse and productive all year round, but it also grows at really varied altitudes and has incredible nutritional value, making it a great crop to grow in different regions too. Having staple crops that can handle tough conditions and have the diversity to adapt is vital for future food security. And now to Colombia. Have you heard of the Paramos? Here in one of the world's most biodiverse countries, these high elevation environments, far above the tree line, are abundant with grasses and bushes that act like mighty sky sponges. The vegetation here holds water that not only provides a stunningly biodiverse ecosystem, but provides food, medicine, and construction materials through the plants it supports downstream. The Paramos are a culture and way of life for the people that live there or rely on their livelihoods from them. And in the region of Boyaca, Kew researchers are working to understand about the vast ecosystem services this environment provides to all the lives it sustains. But in the face of climate change, this way of life is under threat. No crop, no food, and no life can continue without the water from the Paramos. Plants here are threatened by changes in climate and rainfall patterns. And by the middle of the century, several species could undergo extinction. The whole unique ecosystem here is predicted to significantly shrink in size. We need to study existing plants and habitats to find out how nature is adapting to and benefiting from the harsh conditions we might see more of in the future so that we can change our own habits and look for crops that can survive them. Next, 
to the American prairie at Wakehurst on a scorching July day. Ellie Wilding sheltering from the heat in a gazebo surrounded by a sea of yellow prairie flowers. My name's Ellie Wilding and I'm a PhD student in plant sciences at the University of Cambridge. Ecosystem services are basically the benefits that we gain from an ecosystem and they could be anything from provisional services which could be the production of food or timber, they could be supporting services such as flood regulation, they could be cultural or recreational which could include things like education, tourism or a spiritual connection to the landscape. But they're essentially all of these processes and benefits that we get from a properly functioning ecosystem. Fire is a pretty fundamental regulating role in the ecosystem, especially because ecosystem services come from biodiversity and fire is key in shaping the biodiversity of a landscape. And it does that through creating different structures within the habitats, different ecological niches, but also through essentially just clearing the landscape of pests and diseases and allowing an ecosystem to function properly and provide the services as best as possible. Fire plays an integral role in shaping the ecosystems that we have on our planet today. And also it plays this massive role with climate change. And climate change is, is something that affects fire regimes and fire regimes are something that affects climate change. So there's kind of this inherent link between climate and fire. I mean, fires are a natural occurrence. They, they can be naturally ignited by lightning by humans or just accidentally ignited through kind of, you know, barbecues or anything like that. So it is something that has occurred throughout time and there's evidence that goes back to show that early hominids learnt to control fire two million years ago. So this is not a new thing and fire has played a role in our landscapes for a really long time. And it's also what has provided us with the open landscapes that we have at the moment. For example, in a lot of the UK, you wouldn't have heathland exist without things like fire, because fire is considered to be a biomass altering disturbance, but it's something that really cuts everything back. <laughs> So when a fire affects an ecosystem, so say for example, similar to the, the ecosystem that we're looking at now, which is the American prairie at Wakehurst, we can see in front of us there's a lot of kind of herbaceous grass species and there's also some sporadic tree growth. So this is the kind of system that I look at. And in a system like this, you would have the herbaceous layer. When a fire comes along, it will be burnt and you'll lose that herbaceous layer. But lots of other things also happen under the ground. Above the surface, you see a loss of vegetation. What that means below the surface is that you're getting pyrogenic carbon going into the soil, which adds carbon to the soil and enriches it. But areas that are not used to burning are increasing. And that's where the problem really lies because there are these ecosystems that are not evolved and are not adapted to cope with fire and therefore are damaged much more destructively than an ecosystem that is evolved with fire would. In terms of kind of how this works with food and and I guess agriculture as well, slash and burn fires in forests, this is often used to clear land for agriculture. And it's that kind of burning which can sometimes be really damaging because they're often quite uncontrolled. What you kind of really need with a fire is fire breaks, you light it in certain conditions, which means that everything is kind of controlled. But when you clear for agriculture, there often isn't these control mechanisms to kind of keep it contained. And that's when you often see a lot of fires really spread and go wild. 
crop pod relatives have this huge amount of genetic diversity and plants that grow in fire prone ecosystems also have this genetic diversity and it's the genetic diversity that makes them resilient and that's why crop pod relatives are so important and that's how the plants that are in fire prone ecosystems can survive and can regrow. I think it's just the idea of steering away from putting all of our eggs in one basket really and embracing the kind of the wildness that plants give us and embracing their natural diversity and it's a complex system but they can definitely teach us a lot. Fire is part of our future. As the climate warms, understanding how ecosystems behave under fire and how different wild plants respond could be crucial in finding crops that can provide fire-friendly food in the future. But understanding the problematic agricultural and growing practices that lead to the spread of fire could also be a huge step forward in making sure that there's secure food for all. But I wanted to end this episode back in Kew Gardens in London. The Georgian kitchen garden there has only just been refurbished and reopened to the public. I went along to meet Helena Dove to hear how she's been ushering in a whole new generation of future-proof food crops and experimenting with some too. So I'm really excited to come to the one bit of queue that I don't know very well. And that's only because it's just opened a couple of weeks ago. I've taken five minutes to escape into the shade underneath the pergola because the temperature's hitting 30 degrees, above 30 degrees today, middle of summer. And I'm so lucky to be here with Helena, who is in charge of all of this. That can explain what's going on. Cool. So we're sat in the new edible science garden at Kew, which is the kitchen garden by other names. We just reopened after having ripped everything out and started again to make the whole place more accessible, but also a bit more sustainable. Tell me what you've got growing here. What have we got? We've got a bit of everything, to be honest with you. We've got the stars of the show, the tomatoes. Yep, absolutely. Which we love. They've grown really fast, actually, now. Now, we, now we've got the temperatures up. They, they're off. They're winning. And the beans have grown in finally, although we've had a lot of problems with them due to winds, which have been pretty epic this year, and they've tipped out all the beans. And I've I was despairing for a week and they're all going back again so you know <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's been... <laughs> so reassuring that you have problems too <laughs> oh gosh I have loads of problems and and I don't hide them from the public in fact what I do is I've got these amazing boards that I can just write this is what's happened this is what's gone wrong there's no point hiding this information because you don't want people to feel it's unattainable I want people to go oh I can manage that and oh I mean last year we got blight everyone got blight last year right so we do the traditional as you say so that people can see how to do it in their own garden but we're also trying plants that we maybe aren't used to seeing in this country or haven't been grown at all so for example I struggle with lettuces in the middle of summer it's very hot in this kitchen garden it's walled and it's under a flight path and it's in the middle of London which adds a few degrees and lettuces are not super fans of that they take a lot of water they bolt so I'm trialing some different leafy crops I've also got some alternate root crops so I find that main crop potatoes are very tricky in this space they often get blight or they don't look very good they often go brown quite rapidly so rather than growing main crop potatoes which are hard for a lot of people we're trying some other crops so things like dahlias who've got edible roots ochre mashuas so for example we're sat right next to this bed which is people have questioned me what is going on here this is oh working. yeah it's a big <laughs> mishmash of lots of different things it's i mean it's very beautiful yeah. uh, and it's a bit of an experiment for me but i'm working with the scientists who they're working in ethiopia and they're looking at farming practices half of ethiopia is basically in famine 
and the other half is not and the main difference is the way they farm so the farming technique we've got next to us which isn't the full farming technique it's simply a sample is basically growing loads of different crops in one small area rather than one monoculture which if that fails you've lost your crop so for example we've got things like safflower which they use for oil which we could also in this country use for oil which considering we're having issues getting sunflower oil could be an alternate crop for us as well but then they've also got things like rue which is poisonous but they can use the root as a coffee substitute we've also got things like castor oil plants which again notoriously quite poisonous but you can use oil out of them so they grow in everything in one small space so they're very self-sufficient but also they'll grow different types of wheat so if one wheat goes down they've got another to back up so it's just a very small example of, of this work and the scientists at Q are still ongoing with this for another few years and we're hoping to disseminate that work partially through the kitchen garden but partially all over the world. Yeah, a lot of traditional British horticultural techniques are basically watered down agricultural techniques. So you, if you plant cabbages, you plant them all in a nice neat row uh, because that's what you'd do if you had 10 acres of cabbages. <laughs> but uh, this kind of diverse mixing together really works better on that small scale. It makes everything more resilient. So it's the hottest day of the year today. <laughs> uh, uh, it's, it may get hotter than this. So it's supposed <laughs> to break all records, 34 degrees or something like that. What does this sort of approach of learning about resilience and mixing things together and, and trying crops from all over the world and, and really exploring diversity, what does that mean given challenges like climate change? Well, it means that hopefully we will have crops that will thrive in 20 years' time if it gets really bad. And, and the idea for me is that as a horticulturalist, can we grow them? I'm really lucky that we work with our chefs fairly closely as well. So then can we actually eat them? Are they interesting to eat? Can they be cooked? I'm notoriously terrible at cooking. So I need to know for the ochre, for example, how do you cook it? Because that's the question people always ask. So the hope is that if the climate gets hotter and hotter and hotter and in 20 years time, we're saying 30 degrees is normal, which I can't imagine is ever going to be the case, but just on the off chance, that we have crops that will thrive and we're not lastminute.com trying to, uh, to figure out what we can eat. Right in front of us, we've got strawberry sticks. These beautiful little red seed balls, basically, which are look like strawberries. They uh, really do. They're quite sweet on a hot, sunny day. Most things in the Amaranthaceae family, actually, have an edible leaf that doesn't bolt, that doesn't need a lot of water. It often needs a little cooking. You often can't eat it raw. It's got oxalates on it that actually aren't that pleasant. But it's a great alternative to spinach. I think what this bed really proves is that growing unusual edibles isn't just for an educational point of view or from a kind of a novelty point of view. Here it's really practical. Yeah. You can't grow the conventional lettuce. Nope. <laughs> so that this is where we understand that, you know, looking at this diversity actually solves important problems. And with yeah. things like climate change, that's going to become increasingly vital. Oh, definitely. So tell me about, you have a spot here, which I think is really inspirational. And I tell you why. You have a giant magnolia that's at least 100 years old, I'm guessing, yeah. from, from the size of its spreading branches. And it's completely shaded out this bed. I can't see you've got anything at the moment, but shady environments under trees are basically impossible to grow mm. most veg. So what's going to go in here? Well, this magnolia is a, it's a very special magnolia, I'm told, because it's uh, evergreen and it's a summer flowering one. So it's Magnolia delevii which gives me a very shady spot and it's fairly dry. So what we're actually going to do is grow some mushrooms under here. 
Oh. Yeah, mushrooms are super easy. Mushroom. Q does a lot of work with fungi, but it's very hard for us to show visitors what we do because fungi generally pop up for about a week and we have a real variety on site, but it's very hard to label them, for example, because they literally disappear again. So this will be a nice site to talk about the work we do with fungi at Q. What have you learnt here that would be really applicable to your average back garden? Well, I, I actually started growing in pots. I rented and landlords are very not keen on you digging up their lawns. So I've done a little bed here, which I'm calling the urban bed because it's often in urban environments that you struggle to have a lot of space to show what you can do with a small space. So things like companion planting. We've got here the three sisters, which is quite a traditional planting method. It's you... a traditional planting method by native people from North America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not a traditional planting method here until quite recently. So explain this, this kind of combo you've got going on. So the three sisters is a way of growing that you use the corn and let the corn grow up a little bit, then plant your beans. I use French beans or common beans, and they actually grow up the corn. And then to keep all their feet nice and cold, we actually have some squash that are running underneath. So it uses the space really, really well. So each sister is one of three crops that you're growing. Yeah, yeah. And essentially what they create is they create a symbiotic ecosystem mm. where the corn creates the climbing frame that the yeah. beans need, and then the squash creates this, this shady understory. Yeah. Thanks, Helena. If you're growing at home, hopefully that's inspired you to mix it up with some new planting and varieties and not be afraid to make a few mistakes of your own on a diverse and resilient veg plot. Seeing innovation like this also makes me just so excited for the kinds of foods that we might be able to buy and cook in years to come. Many ingredients that are commonplace today would have been totally bonkers from generations before. And I just love the idea about embracing new and unfamiliar crops while also making our diets more sustainable. On top of that, as we develop and bring new varieties to market, it's important that these varieties can be grown reliably in the climate conditions of the future and promote diverse farming systems, sustainable practices, and healthy local livelihoods. Okay, that's no small challenge, but there are plants and crops that are just waiting for us to embrace them in more diverse and creative ways. And if we can learn from their wild relatives, perhaps it isn't too late after all for some of our favorites. Next time on Unearthed from the Royal Botanic Gardens queue, Poppy Okocha is meeting chefs who are shaking it up in their ethical, sustainable kitchens. She'll find out how the way we grow and eat food plays an enormous role in our future health. And you can hear what you can do at home to play your part in helping our world have a more sustainable, secure food future. You can follow or subscribe to this podcast on your favorite app and check out our other episodes too. I'm James Wong. Thanks for listening.